come hither. Okay. How many of you have favorite Bible characters? What are your favorite Bible characters? What is it? David? Why? Because he's a worshiping warrior kind of thing? Who else? Who else has a favorite Bible character? Yes. Joseph, why? Very good. Thank you. Who else? Ben? Caleb, why? Good, very good. Yes, Ken. Okay, we won't talk about Peter. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, no, he's off limits. You don't have anybody else but Peter. I'm going to talk about Peter. Who else? Anybody? Yes. Jonathan, why? Good example of friendship. Anybody else? Yes. Who? Why? Good. I saw that hand in the way back. There's got to be somebody. Somebody. You know, always. You know. Who does everybody... No, I won't say it. Yeah, I saw this two hands. And then that's it. These two. Why would you be different on purpose? You of all people. Okay. Okay, John, because he's the lover, he's close to Jesus. Okay, good. And you? Abraham, why? Because he didn't listen to the voice in his head. Ah, very good. Good choices, all of them, except for Jesus. That one, you know. Smart aleck in every crowd. The one I probably most connect with is the one Ken picked, which is Simon Peter. And that's primarily because he was kind of a, um, he was a bigger than life kind of guy. Uh, I know that people say it's stupid to say anybody can do anything more than 100%, but if anybody could, it would have been Peter. Peter was like a 110% kind of guy. Everything he did was out there. It was loud. It was boisterous. It was wholehearted. That's just Peter. And at times, that extreme personality could get him into trouble, even to a point where it could seem as if he was being insensitive or uncaring towards people. But the reason why I personally identify with Peter so much is because most often he seemed to be getting himself in trouble. He was failing a lot. And I've told you that for my life, I feel like I have met God in the ditch more often than not. I tend to be a ditch kind of person. God meets me in my failure. He saves me. He lifts me up and I go on and then I fail again. And that's kind of how I identify with Peter. So what I want to do today is I want to pick up with what I started with last week. So would you turn to John chapter 18, John 18, <clears throat> Last week, I used the life of Simon Peter to capture the idea of what it means to fail 
but not to have failure be the defining moment in your life. And I entitled that message, How to Fail Forward. Um, but John 18, let's begin reading at verse 1, okay, if you follow along. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And I talked to you last week, by the way, about how that he, which in most of your Bibles is italicized, means it's a word that was added by the editors for readability. That literally what Jesus said was, I am. Which is a name that the Jews understood referred to God himself. So he was claiming deity. He wasn't just claiming goodness. He was claiming, I am God. So he said, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I, lo I have lost none. And then we began looking specifically at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Melchus. And I mentioned how last week in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus actually picked up that piece of ear and he reattached it miraculously to the guy's head so it worked perfectly. And that Jewish tradition says that Melchus later on became a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Now, jump up to verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And again, when it says that, it's referring to John himself. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Remember these verses, by the way. Remember especially verse 16. Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. And I gave you two points last week for how to fail forward. The first one was, all of us blow it. We all blow it at times. And I talked about this guy that I heard preach uh, a message. I listened to quite a few of his sermons, actually. Uh, while you guys might listen to music in your cars, I tend to listen to sermons. Uh, and this guy was talking about how uh, and he's been ministering even longer than I have, and he's a well-known minister. He's on TV, radio, internet, all that kind of stuff. But he talked about how when somebody does something kind for you or they'll greet you in the morning and they'll say, well, have a good day, you might respond to them and say, 
you too. And how often we find ourselves saying just those two simple words, you too, in the wrong scenario. And he talked about how a waitress had come to him and said to him something like, have a good meal, enjoy your dinner. And his response to her was, you too. Well, she's not eating. But we say dumb things sometimes like that. And I talked about how on this trip to China, all throughout this trip, because of those words ringing in my mind from that sermon, any time, like that ticket agent would say, have a nice trip, I found myself having to stop myself from saying, you too. Just because we say it at the wrong time. And if we can't get our words right, what does that say about the rest of our life altogether? So all of us blow it. But then we looked into the life of Peter and saw sometimes we blow it big time, which was my second point. And again, if you haven't listened to that message, you can get it either from the uh, sound department or I believe it's on our Facebook page or on our website, whichever, I don't know. But one of those things, it's around somewhere. You can ask uh, Luke and Luke can help you. But if you haven't heard that, you might want to listen to that message because it's actually the prelude into this message. So I want to pick up today with talking to you about the Peter problem. That's kind of what I want to deal with this morning. So the last thing we saw was Matthew 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, who are people saying that I am? And they gave all kinds of answers. But then he brings it home and he says, but who do you say that I am? And they said, well, you know, maybe John, maybe Elijah, I don't know. But then Peter steps forward and he makes a pronouncement that is prophetic and revelatory when he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you've got to remember, Peter's the guy we've been talking about last week and beginning this week, about a guy who blows it all the time. But this time he gets it right, so much so that Jesus says to him, Peter, it's a miracle. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father that's in heaven. And then we saw last week, we finished with this, that right after that, literally two verses later, Jesus, after talking about his death, things he's going to suffer in Jerusalem, and that he's going to be raised the third day, it says Peter took him aside and rebuked Jesus. You've got to know you're feeling pretty full of yourself if you think it's okay to rebuke the Son of God. But that's kind of what Peter does. And although there's a part of us that can understand, I mean, how many of you have driven by an accident even lately? Uh, I, I was driving by an accident. What do you tend to do? You slow down, and you look, and you think, how amazing is this accident? Like, how bad is it? I, I was driving by the hospital, or actually, I wasn't driving by. I was walking by the hospital, and there's this car in the middle of the road, right in front of the hospital, and its hood is smashed up. The front of the car is smashed, and there's this truck parked alongside of the road, just over to the right a little bit. Truck parked. And it's clear that this little car has just driven into the back of the truck, and the back of the truck doesn't have a mark on it. It's like this big thing with this huge honking uh, round, four-inch kind of uh, bumper on the thing. And this car had run right into the back of him. And there's a part of me that thought, oh, I bet that trucker's laughing about it. Because there's a little part of us that almost takes a little bit of pleasure. And how many of you laugh when somebody falls out of their chair by accident or starts to trip? There's a little bit of us that finds some humor in it, even though there's a part of us that says we shouldn't, we do. Well, there's a part of us that feels some of that about Peter because Peter's constantly stepping in it and we know, okay, we all have done it, but at least this time it's not me. This time it's Peter. So I can laugh at Peter a little bit. So here is Jesus who says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
That's pretty serious stuff. That's got to hurt a little bit. And we're going to pick up with that. So would you turn to Matthew 17 now? We're going to pick right up from there. It's almost like sometimes we're schizophrenic. We do good one day, and the next day we just blow it. And that's kind of what I want us to look at today. Matthew 17, and look at verse 1. And again, verse 16, or chapter 16, rather, is where Simon, or Simon Peter makes his pronouncement, Thou art the Christ, and it's also where Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. So that's how that chapter ends. Verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, get the picture here. It says, six days later. So, six days after Jesus had said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, if Jesus said to you, you're Satan, how might you feel? Maybe a little bit bummed? A little bit embarrassed? A little bit like you want to hide? So you can pretty much guarantee that Peter is kind of standing a little bit away from Jesus. Kind of hiding a little bit. It's kind of like when your dad yells at you and you know you're in trouble and he's now rebuked you pretty sharply, maybe with his hand or his belt or something. But you've gotten in trouble. You kind of avoid him for a little bit. And that's kind of what Peter is doing, I think. He's got his feelings hurt. He's nursing it a little bit. And Jesus stops the group on the roadside and says, listen, I've got a special mission, and I can't take all of you, but I can take a few. So, John, I'd like you to come with me, and um, James, I'd like you to come. And, and you could almost see him looking all over. It's like, where is he? And all of a sudden he sees, there's Peter in the way back, hiding. He's just chewing on a piece of wheat, just, just ignoring life, just pretend I'm not here. And Jesus says, and you, Peter, I want you to come too. Now, you've got to know that inside, Peter's feeling a couple of things. Number one, he's thinking, okay, so I guess I'll let that whole get behind me Satan thing go for a little while, Jesus. I'll forget that you said that, and I, I can help you out again. And there's a little bit of him that's smug thinking, the rest of you nine apparently don't measure up, because even though he said that to me, he still chose me. So he's still got this thing of pride that goes on inside of Peter. And so that's kind of the setting. Now let's look at it. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Now, think about what's going on. This is the first time the disciples are actually seeing Jesus as he really is in his glory. This is kind of like, think about the Old Testament. When the temple was finished, and it says the glory of God came down upon the temple, what did all the people do? They fell on their faces and were silent. They couldn't talk. And in the midst of this scene in which Jesus is as bright as the sun, there's Moses, the lawgiver of God, and Elijah, the very voice of God, the prophet of God, standing right next to him. Now, in that moment, I don't know what you guys would do, but I think if it were most of us, we'd want to crawl under the nearest ground that we could find. There's only been two or three times in my whole life in which the presence of God has come so powerfully 
kind of like maybe what they're describing. I can remember once I was up at Ralph and Cindy Evans's house. We were in their living room, and they have a wood stove right there, you remember? And in front of the wood stove, they had like this carpet where they would you know, kind of save from all the wood and the chips and the ashes falling out. They had a little carpet there. And we were praying. And I can still remember, in fact, I, uh, Sister Sylvia was there at that time. We were just having a prayer time before we met for the weekend. It was a Friday night. And we're there praying, and the presence of God came into their living room so powerfully that it was at that point in time the most powerful thing I had ever felt in my life. I thought at that moment that the molecules in my body would explode. And I became deathly afraid. I wanted it, but I was scared to death. And I literally picked that carpet up that was there, dirty carpet, and I hid under the carpet lest God kill me with his presence. I can remember one other occasion, right about here, back when we had the pews, you guys remember the pews, right about where Nicole was sitting, I was sitting, and we were in a time of worship, and God came so powerfully, I'd never done this in my whole life, I hid under the pew, because I honestly thought, this is getting dangerous, the presence of God, if he actually comes into this room, I think we're all going to die, it was that powerful, that's the scene that Peter, James, and John were facing. The presence of God in all of His glory was being revealed to them. And there's Moses and Elijah, long gone, but as real as life, standing right in front of them. Let's read on, verse 4. Then Peter answered. Answered. Answered? Who asked Peter a question? Have you ever answered when you weren't asked? Have you ever given your opinion when your opinion wasn't asked for? How many of you guys have sore legs from where your wife keeps kicking you under the table every time you open your mouth and you weren't asked something? I pick on you guys because I know you ladies would never do that. And Peter answered. It's bad enough that he answered when he wasn't even asked. But look at what he answers. Verse 4. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's a good thing we're here. Isn't that sweet? Lord, I know you got Moses over here, and he's pretty big in his own right. And you got Elijah, and he's, you know, he's kind of important in the scope of things, but... Oh yeah, you got you too. But Lord, it's a good thing I'm here. That's, that's what he's saying. Lord, it's good that we're here. And if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now look at verse 5. Look at those first five words. While he was still speaking. What does that mean? It means that God himself had to interrupt Peter. You know, it's pretty bad when the only way God can get a word in edgewise is to interrupt you. But that was Peter's experience. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, have you ever heard those words before? Where did you hear them? At his baptism. As he came up out of the water, it says, 
uh, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. It doesn't say he became a dove, whether you think that or not. It says like a dove, gently fluttering down. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and a voice spoke out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But this time, God adds two words. Shut up. I, I know, God wouldn't be so crass. That's really what he's saying. He's saying, Peter, would you shut up? Listen to him. Stop talking. Peter, again, just it's constant with him, which brings me to my third point. You've already got the first one. The first one was all of us blow it. And then we blow it big time. And now number three, all of us blow it all the time. It seems like no matter how hard we try, we're always blowing it. How many times have you said to, our, to yourself, when am I ever going to get it right? I mean, be honest. I know you're all Christians and you're all dressed nicely and you're all looking like you're real spiritual. But I'm not the only one that's done it, am I? You say something that you shouldn't say? I, I had the radio auction yesterday. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys listened to the Qantas baseball radio auction. It was yesterday from 8 until noon. And at one point, somebody started talking about a specific thing in this town. And I said to myself, keep your mouth shut, Chris. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Kept saying that to myself until I opened my mouth. And then, it's not that I said anything that I didn't believe or wasn't true. I had to go back afterwards and say, listen, can I just back up here? I shouldn't have said one word. I'm sorry for saying anything. I shouldn't have said one word. I constantly believe and pray for our businesses in town to be blessed, to increase, because that will be a blessing to our town. So I'm sorry I said anything at all. And they're looking at me like I've got four heads because they're all going at it because they think, oh, no, let's go ahead and tear this business apart. But how many times have I said to myself, in that very moment, keep your mouth shut? I used to carry a card with me everywhere I went. It had two words on it. It was laminated, so it wouldn't fall apart on me. It, it, just, it was just one card. And so when I would go to meetings, I would hold it in my hands, either in my lap or sometimes on the table. Just, just a card. It had two words. It said, shut up. It was a constant reminder to me that I blow it all the time. In fact, the Scripture says this way. Where there are many words, there's much sin. That would be a good verse for all of us. Where there are many words, there's much sin. Turn to John 13 for just a moment. John 13, verse 5. We all blow it all the time. John 13, beginning at verse 5. <clears throat> After that, he poured water into a basin, he being Jesus, the Last Supper, poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. Now, you just read the words. Then he came to Simon Peter. But can I suggest that actually John, who was writing these words, probably felt this and said it this way? Then he came to Simon Peter. You notice it doesn't say, then he came to John, or then he came to Andrew, or then he came to Matthew. It says, then he, it's almost like John is warning us ahead of time. Another Peter moment is about to hit. So listen up. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? 
Has anybody asked you a question, and although you didn't want to do it because you knew it would be rude, there's a part of you that in your mind said, duh, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm holding Jillian during worship, and she's at a stage where she likes to ask a lot of questions. And her questions are, what's that? So she points at the ceiling, what's that? And I said, those are lights. She goes, no, the ceiling, what's that? I said, it's a ceiling. Oh. She points at my phone. She goes, what's that? I said, my phone? Yeah, your phone. What is that? My phone. She points at the Kleenex. What's that? What do you think it is, Jillian? Kleenex, yeah. What's that? That's kind of what we live with in our own lives. Not just with Jillian. We do sometimes dumb things. And John's just kind of warning us ahead of time. Peter's about to stick his foot in his mouth again. Peter says to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you don't understand now. And the other disciples are going, "Uh uh-huh, that's right, he doesn't get it. But you will know after this. Peter said to him, and again, think about what's going on. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Remember Peter's words? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's doing something. Do you really think it's wise to tell God he shouldn't be doing something? Is that good counsel to give to somebody, to tell God not to do something? But Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And Peter, I'm sure inside, is feeling very spiritual and holy. Like, No, not me. Do all their feet, because their feet need it. But not me, Lord. I can take care of myself. I don't need your help. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, You have no part in me. And then Peter said, Lord, okay, if you want to have it your way, not just my feet, but my whole body. And it's, I know Jesus is much more patient. I know he is. But there's got to be something in him that says something like this. Okay. I don't need to wash all of you. I only need to wash your feet, Peter. Like he doesn't seem to get it. Look at Matthew 26 now. Matthew 26. I referenced this last week, but I want to kind of touch on it leading up to my next point. Matthew 26, verse 31. Matthew 26 and 31. Then Jesus said to them, By the way, who is the them? In the context, who is the them? The disciples, okay? So keep that in mind. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. How many? All. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. For after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Then John answered and said to him, is that what it says? Oh yeah, Peter again. Then Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. What what did Jesus just say? All. Who did he say it to? All of the disciples. So everybody was there hearing it, right? And then Peter says in front of everybody, Not me. They might, but not me, Lord. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, in front of all of them, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But get this, get these last words. Listen to this. And so said all the disciples. So here's Peter opening his mouth, but the other disciples are going, "Uh uh-huh, that's right, that's right, we got your back, Jesus. So they were all as complicit as he was, and they were all hearing it all. Now, my fourth point is very simply this, and we're going to look at it. Blowing it really hurts. It hurts. It hurts you. It hurts you a lot. And it hurts people around you. It hurts your family. It hurts your spouse. It hurts the people that you love. How do you think Peter felt knowing that he had said, Lord, I will never deny you even if it costs me my life. And then just hours later, he denies him not once, not twice, but three times. How do you think Peter might have been feeling? Look at John 18 again. I told you to remember this verse. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did that other disciple named John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So John apparently had some kind of relationship, maybe even a relative, a relationship to the high priest so that he could go in to the inner courtyard of the high priest. Peter stood at the door outside. Then that other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So John, who had already heard everything that we've just talked about, heard the declaration that Peter had made, brings Peter into the courtyard. And he is there with Peter in the high priest's courtyard. Peter stands there, sees Jesus being beaten, and he denies him three times. This is the same man who said, even if all the rest stumble, I won't. Even if all the others betray you, I will not, even to the death. John heard it all, and he also heard Peter deny him three times in the garden. Look to Luke 22 now. Luke 22. Luke 22. This is the third denial of Jesus. I want you to see something that often is missed by people. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. They just said, are you one of his disciples for the third time? Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now look at this. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine what Jesus' look at Peter did to Peter's soul in that one moment? Have you ever blown it really big? I mean, honestly, you've blown it. Don't, not just, I'm not talking about where you said something stupid one moment and it's not like your life pattern, but you really hurt somebody terribly and they just stare at you. I can, I, I've been married to my wife long enough that I, there's not too many more stupid things I could say to her that I haven't already said. But I can remember on one occasion specifically her looking at me, just staring at me for a moment after I, I in anger, had said something I should never have said. I said it, and she just stared at me for a minute. And inside, I'm angry, I'm wanting to justify it, but you know there's no justification for what you've just said or done. And then she says to me, is that really what you want to say to me? Is that really how you feel about me? 
and inside I'm dying. You have to know that's kind of how Peter felt, but he's talking to the Lord who he's just denied for three times, and Jesus looks at him. Is it any wonder that when Peter went out, he wept bitterly? See, when you fail, it hurts. It hurts you because there's something in you that thinks, I ought to do better. I ought to know better. I love God. I ought to be able to do better than this. No one sets out in life to blow it. But it's almost like life happens and it throws curves at us and we continually fall in the ditch. We're always saying something we shouldn't say or doing something we shouldn't say. And when we fail, it's not merely that we fail. And this is my point for all of both messages. It's not merely that we fail. It's we begin to think that we are failures. We begin to take failure as our identity, as a point of shame, of fear. I don't want anybody to know because if they ever knew, well, the truth is most people know more than what we think they know already. We're not stupid. We see things. We already know what's going on behind the scenes. We might not know every jot and tittle, but we all know we're human and we fail. We say things we shouldn't and we do things that we shouldn't. Failure can become our identity and we must not allow it to happen, which brings me to my last point for this message, which is there's hope for those who fail. We can't allow failure to define us or to identify us. Uh, we all fail and we all fail big times. We all fail often and when we fail, it hurts. It hurts us and it hurts those around us but we can't allow our failure to determine our status in life or our future. Now, how many of you have ever gotten a reference form for somebody? You know, maybe for camp or for a job. Somebody says, would you be willing to be a reference? And that place sends you a reference form, and it has a whole list of things, and sometimes it's like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how does this person rate, 1 being the worst, 10 being the best? My question is, how would you rate Simon Peter? With all that we've read about Simon, how would you rate Simon Peter on a reference form? Uh, let, let's pick on uh, dependability. How would you rate Simon Peter on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, yeah, there's that whole step out of the boat on the water and fall on your face and sink and almost drown thing. And there's this whole thing about uh, sleeping on the job in the garden so maybe I'd give him a six or a seven, you know, because at least he was there. Even if he slept, but he was there. Well, you can't always get everything out of everybody. So I'll give him a six. No, I'll be nice. I'll give him a seven. Uh, how about honesty? How's Peter rate on honesty? Oh, yeah, he denied God three times. I'll give him a three on that one. I want to be honest. Uh, how would he do on Emotional stability. Well, he once cut the ear off of a guy in anger. Um, I recommended he take anger management classes, but he just wouldn't. I guess I'd give him a zero on that one. Sorry. How about loyalty? He denied his closest friend. He turned him in. Hmm. That's not good. I guess I couldn't give more than a two on that one. How about communication style? 
How is he with communication? How, how is he with relating to people? Well, he didn't do as bad on this one. He does tend to swear when he gets mad, though, because you know, he does get mad. I guess I'd give him a five on that one. And then usually the reference forms will end this way. Could you just give us a one-word description of this person? Yeah. He's a uh, strong, virile man who's a uh, fair to Midland fisherman. And, um, well, God calls him Satan, so I guess that's about the best I could say. But that's kind of how we look at Peter when we read his story. But my question is, is that how Jesus saw Peter? Is that how God sees Peter? And I would suggest to you that it is not. I told you at the beginning, I probably identify more with Peter than any other. So Peter becomes somebody that I read often. Peter's accounts, Peter's story, and what happens to Peter. Not just what we've read thus far, but what happens in the future that we haven't read yet. But two of my favorite verses about Peter that I love, you can turn there or not, it'll be up on the wall, is Mark 16, 7. It says this. This is a post-resurrection appearance. And these are the words that it said. This is by an angel at the grave where some ladies have gone to anoint the body of Jesus. He says this to them. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him as he said to you. It's almost like Jesus, knowing that Peter would feel a little bit lower than a worm's belly in a tire's rut, wanted to make sure that Peter knew he wasn't left out. Wanted to make sure that Peter knew, you're not forgotten, I've not given up on you. And Peter, two of my favorite words in all the Bible. My other ones are, but God. And Peter, he doesn't leave us out even when we're failures. It's almost like he's saying, you know, Peter, you failed it big time. You failed. But I want you to know I haven't stopped believing in you. I haven't stopped hoping in you. I haven't stopped loving you. And I want to make sure you're there at that first occasion when you get to see me. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Don't you love that? Even if we blow it, God is still faithful to us. One of the things I have said to you many times, and I'm going to tell you right now, that I will repeat it again and again and again until the day I die. Because I want you to get it and I want my, me to get it. God chose us already knowing everything about us. Okay, let me say it again. God chose you knowing everything about you. He knew you would fail. He knew you would deny him. He knew that you would lie. He knew that you would steal. He knew that you would commit adultery. He knew that you would get caught up in pornography. He knew it all. He knew you would end in divorce. And he still chose you. He still chose you. Knowing your failings, knowing your predilection towards sin, knowing your tendency to fall in the ditch, he still chose you. And he's not sorry that he did. He has never regretted for one moment his choice. See, you go through the door called salvation and you think it says over it, I chose God. That's what you think. You think, okay, one day I heard the story of the gospel and I made a choice. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to accept him into my heart. 
But when you've been walking with God for a while, you look back at that door from salvation and you see the words chosen by God. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Before the foundations of the world, I chose you. In fact, John the writer puts it this way. We can't love him first unless he first loves us. That's what John says. We love him because he first loved us. In Mark 16, the verses that I just read to you, think about what's going on. Jesus, who has suffered more than any human being has ever suffered in all of life, because he suffered not just physically, but all the sins of all of mankind of all time was put upon him upon the cross. He suffered inhumanly. He's buried in the ground. He is raised by the Spirit of God, and he's about to ascend to the Father, and he puts an angel as sentinel over his gravesite. And he says to the angels, make sure when some of these ladies come, and isn't it interesting, by the way, that the first ones to the grave are ladies? I think ladies have a definite place in the kingdom of God, regardless of what some might think. But he says, there's going to be these ladies who are going to come to care for my body. You need to tell them that they need to tell the disciples I'm going to meet with them, but they need to go to Galilee where I will go before them. And then he, it's almost like he starts to go, and he turns back and he says, oh yeah, make sure you tell them to remember to tell Peter. Because he knew Peter's tendency would be to hide. And in our failings, in our sin, our temptation is to hide. Whether it be in the Old Testament where we hid behind fig leaves in the garden, or whether in the New Testament we just stop going to church and we start looking for other things that are more realistic. Church just doesn't do it for me anymore. We start finding places to hide to explain away what is our own failing. And Jesus says, don't forget. And then he names you by name. Don't forget them. Don't forget Chris. Don't forget Cindy. Don't forget Josh. Don't forget Eric. He says, don't forget them. I want them to know that I am thinking about them. John 21, the other verse that I told you I really love about Peter. And this came as a relatively new revelation to me in the last few years. John 21, 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, again, this is a post-resurrection appearance. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I confess that when I read those verses for years and years and years, I always had the sense that Jesus was kind of asking him three times as a subtle or not so subtle reminder to Peter that you denied me three times. It was almost like Jesus was rubbing his nose in it just a little bit. And then one day I can remember thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like Jesus. I don't see Jesus anywhere in the Bible rubbing our nose in our failure. 
So if it's not that, what could it be? And all of a sudden it dawned on me. I think he did ask him three times on purpose to remind him of his denial, but for an entirely different reason. To remind him that even though you denied me, in your heart of hearts, Peter, you know you still loved me. You were scared, you gave in to pressure, but in your heart of hearts, you still were a lover of God. Because even lovers of God can fail. When you fail, it doesn't mean you don't love God, and it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It just means we're weak. And he knew all of that before he ever chose us. I want to remind you of the rest of Peter's life really quickly. Again, I want to remind you, even going back into the scripture we already read last week, where he got out of the boat and then he sank. But please remember, he's the only one that got out. The others could have gotten out just as surely because Jesus didn't say, come to me, Peter. He just said, come. Could have been the whole boat. But only Peter got out, which already shows some level of courage. And then I thought about Pentecost, the birth of the early church. And I know this didn't happen. I know it. I, I kind of make things up in my own head trying to picture things for myself. But I can almost see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sitting down together. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's told, go and wait for the promise of the Father. What's the promise of the Father? The Holy Spirit being poured out. When the Holy Spirit's poured out, that's going to be the birth of the church. So they're talking about, okay, when you get poured out, Holy Spirit, we probably should have a keynote speaker because anytime you're going to have a big event, you need a keynote speaker. Who should we get to speak for us? And I can just see them talking among themselves. Well, we could get Matthew, but... Some of the Jews won't like him because he was a tax collector. and We could get Simon, but they don't like him because he's a terrorist. And John, well, they think he's just a suck-up. They think he's the teacher's pet, so they won't listen to him. And I can, still, I can almost see the Holy Spirit looking with a gleam in his eye at the Father and the Son and saying, I have an idea. Let's ask Peter to do it. I mean, isn't that going to be a hoot? I mean, if anybody can do it, Peter can do it. And what do you think he's going to say? And when he stood up that day, 3,000 people got saved. That's the same Peter who just 40 days previous had denied Jesus three times. He's the same Peter in Acts chapter 3 who says to a lame man at the gate called beautiful, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It was Peter who stood in front of some of the most jealous, scornful religious leaders in Acts 4 who said, is it better for us to obey God or to obey man? He said, there is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved in the name of Jesus. In Acts 5, which is one of, it's just an amazing section. The people bring the deaf, the lame, the sick, they bring them and they lay them on the side of the road. And the scripture says, so that as Peter would walk by, his shadow would touch them and they would be healed. That same Peter. It's that same Peter in Acts chapter 9, who when a young woman died and they called for him, he went up and he had the courage to say to her, young woman, rise from the dead. And she came back to life. See, God knows everything about us. But because you fail, that's not the end of the story. That's only part of your story. And it's a good part of your story, by the way, because though you failed, you still love God, and God still loved you, and He still had purpose for your life, and He redeems even that which you have done. 
There's nothing that God leaves unredeemed. We are all frail and we human and we fail. We blow it often. But He still loves us. He still uses us. As long as we keep in mind this final statement I want to give to you, which is this. Knocked down does not mean knocked out. Unless you let it. Unless you choose to not get up from the mat. I gave you the quote from Winston Churchill last week. Success is not final and failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. And if I could quote one of my favorite Western actors, John Wayne, he said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyways. It's going on no matter what. I had a recent teacher said to me, I, I was going over something uh, with them and I had failed about a uh, task that was a part of the assignment. I had failed at it. Uh, I just didn't do it well. And I said something and uh, they said to me, Pastor Chris, you need to hear me. Failure is good research. Because now I know, okay, I don't want to do it that way again. It didn't work. And that helped me to have a grip on things. Yeah, I stepped out of line. I drowned. Uh, I got under the waves. But that doesn't mean I don't get out of the boat again. Except for next time, I'm not going to look at the waves. I'm going to look at the storm tamer himself. Because he's the only one who has the power to hold me up. And I want to remind you of um, the poem that I taught you guys. Hopefully you'll remember it for the rest of your life that Carlton Spencer gave. I found out, by the way, on this trip to China that Carlton Spencer didn't make up that poem. I thought he had. That poem actually came from William Carey, who was one of the first missionaries to China. William Carey had a poem that went like this, very simply, plot on, plot on, plot on. See, in this life, it doesn't always feel fancy. It doesn't always feel exciting. But we continue on. When we fall, we get up. The Scripture says, though the wicked fall seven times, he stays down. The righteous falls, he gets up again because he has the Lord by his side. I want to finish today knowing, as I had prayed about it uh, ahead of time, uh, if the worship team wants to come back, knowing that um, all of us here have failed at times. So I want you to just take a moment, if you would, and close your eyes. I don't know what your failure looks like. I don't know the areas of your life, the arenas in which you have felt like you have failed often, maybe even to a point where you've taken an identity of failure. But I know this. I know that God still loves you with every bit of his God heart. He's not angry. He doesn't regret his choice. He's not upset. He's not looking to avoid you until you can finally get it right. But his heart is towards you. So I want you to just take a moment and ask the Lord, Lord, are there areas of my life when I have taken on an identity that is not the identity you have given me? I have called myself by names that you didn't call me. Have I believed lies even about myself? Have I listened to a voice that cries in my head constantly, failure, not good enough, never enough, so that shame becomes my cloak? Fear of being found out. 
so I hide. It's possible that your arena of failure is in your marriage. Maybe it's in your parenting. You feel like somehow I must have failed for things to come out the way they did. And you've been living for too long with that sense of guilt and shame. And I believe the Father would delight in coming to you today and showing his love, pouring it upon you and reminding you that you are his chosen one. Yes, you failed, but that failure isn't the end of the story. If that's you today and you say, I, I'm it's something that I struggle with, even where it begins to border into depression that comes from discouragement. I feel like a failure. Not just that I failed. I feel like a failure. Like I've blown my life big time. I got off track one day, and it just doesn't feel like I could get back on track. I committed this sin. And there's no way God could ever use me again. If that's you, and you're saying, God, I need you to meet with me today. I know it takes courage. But that's kind of what Peter had to do again and again. Have courage. If you're saying, yeah, I can't wear that as my identity badge any longer. The Father won't allow it because he chose me. That's you. I'm going to ask you to have the courage just to stand where you are and say, that's me. Now, in your heart, you don't have to say it out loud. But in your heart, I want you to kind of take stock of where you've been. You've stood, and in standing, you're saying, it's me. It's me. That's where you've been. Now I want you to hear the Father tell you how he sees you. 
Let him speak to your heart right now. I can guarantee you the Father does not see you as a failure. You're not a castaway. He's not forgotten you and He's not given up on you. He loved you in the beginning when He called you and He loves you just as much today. His love never wanes. There's no ebbing to the flow of the ocean of God's love. I want you to hear me, you who are standing. You can't perform good enough to be perfect. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. But our measurement in God is never measured by that. It's measured by His performance. I said at the beginning, break. Every bit of the righteousness of Jesus is resting upon you right now. And He is transforming you moment by moment and day by day into His image. You are not the same as you were. You are changing from glory to glory. He doesn't measure you based upon whether or not you yelled at your kids today or whether you were the perfect mother. He doesn't measure you today based upon how well you witnessed at work or how when somebody asked you, you were afraid and you just kind of backed away. There's not a one of us that haven't done it at some point. He measures you based upon the fact that you are his son, his daughter. Recently, there was a post on Facebook in which Liana was saying, you don't have to train to be a princess. You just have to be nice and kind to people. And I love that, but I won't even take it any farther. You don't have to train to be a princess at all. You just are. If you're God's daughter, you're a princess in the kingdom of God. If you're God's son, you are a prince in the kingdom. And there's nothing you can do to change that. That's who you are. Don't allow failure to be your identity. Now, As the worship team sings this song, let it just kind of soak through your soul. And hear the Father saying these words to you.
Jesus. Now, I want you to look at me if you would. The temptation is this. When we've recognized our failings, our sin, we come before the Father, we hear Him say, you're forgiven. But the temptation is still to walk cautiously. I want to be careful for a while because I don't want to blow it again. I want to be careful because I want to make sure He's okay with me. You need to walk with your head up, with your eyes looking outward and say, He who has declared His love over me isn't wanting me to hide in shame any longer. doesn't want me to, be, to pretend to be humble. He wants me to walk as a son and daughter of God. So when you go out of this place, just because you stood doesn't mean you're anything less than anybody else. The fact that others didn't stand either means that that wasn't the word that God had for them that day or they're a liar, they have never failed. You know that's not true. Just might not be where God is at right this second in their life. But every one of us have stood here and said, God, I need you to speak over me. How do you see me? What is it that you think about me? So go with your head up. I don't mean walk around strutting in pride, but go with your head up saying, God, I'm loved by you, I'm chosen by you. That's the word of the Lord that God gave through Peter. If you're going to fail, which we all will, let's always grab hold of Jesus. That's what Peter did when he sank. He cried out to Jesus. Jesus reached out and he grabs hold of him. That's our lifeline. I don't need to call a friend. I've got a lifeline. His name is Jesus. That's the word of the Lord to you today. You are embraced by God. And He's absorbed your history in His redemptive plan. Your sin is forgiven. He said to Peter, after Peter made this pronouncement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Whoever sins you will forgive on earth, will be forgiven in heaven. And I declare before heaven and earth that if you have come before God with a humble heart to say, God, that's not who I want to be. I love you with all of my heart. I've confessed my sin. Then I declare God has said he forgives you. He says he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That is his declaration to you today. Forgiven, chosen, and loved accepted in the beloved. That's his promise. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your word and for the life of Peter that ministers to my own soul so much and to these here today. I pray that you would constantly remind us of the truths of your word, that there's hope for we who blow it, and that hope is in you. And yes, you can help us and you can change us and you are. But even now, when we fail, it doesn't stop the fact that you love us and you've chosen us and you don't regret that decision. Let each heart go out with confidence in you, I pray. In the name of Christ, I ask it. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.